Welcome to our seventh podcast um, at Carolina Roll Call. My name is Ja'Cory, and my partner name is? My name is Coleman Bryant, and uh, we're so humbled today to start off this week with Representative Nancy Mace. Um, she's running for the uh, first congressional seat against Joe Cunningham, and this is probably one of the most, if not the most, exciting race in our state um, today because it was a seat that was flipped um, in 2018. Uh, Representative Mace, we're so glad um, to have you here. And for all of our viewers who don't know you or haven't met you yet, uh, we'd like to give you a chance to give a brief introduction of uh, who you are as a person. Yeah, of course. And I want to thank you two for doing this and putting this together, um, enjoying it. And, uh, you know, when I was 17, about 25 years ago, I'm, I'm a 42-year-old single working mom of two kids right now. And uh, But when I was 17, I dropped out of high school. And... My parents, my dad's a retired army general, my mom's a retired school teacher. I actually dropped that out of the school that my mom was teaching at. I can't even imagine what I put her through during that, some difficult times in my life. But they said, if you're gonna stop going to school, well, certainly you're gonna start going to work. And one of my first jobs was as a waitress at the Waffle House on College Park Road in Latson. So when you're coming to Charleston, that's exit 203 off the interstate. And I learned some very tough lessons during some very tough times in my life. And I learned about the value of hard work. I used to stand on a, on a piece of duct tape about 12 inches wide and I would yell to the cooks in the back how my customers wanted their hash browns, smothered, covered, and chunked. And, and uh, that year, the principal of my high school was actually a graduate of the Citadel and uh, he tried to get me to come back and I refused to come back to school. But one of the things that he allowed me to do was to take uh, college courses at Trident Technical College on Rivers Avenue in North Charleston. And today, for many high school students that might be out there, that's called dual enrollment. But back in the 90s, they never even heard of dual enrollment back in those days. And so I finished up my high school classes by taking college courses. And in six months, I had my high school diploma. I graduated actually a year early at the age of 17. And then a year later in 1996, the summer of 1996, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion on a Supreme Court case against the Virginia Military Institute and VMI in Virginia, which said if you were a state-funded college, university, institution of higher learning, you could not discriminate based on gender if you were government-funded. And that very same day, the Citadel decided to let women in. And I didn't go there to be the first woman to graduate from there. That wasn't on my radar at all. My father is a graduate of the Citadel. The principal of my high school was a graduate of the Citadel and literally saved my life. And I went there because I had something to prove to myself. I had something to prove to my, to my mom and my dad that I could go to a place and be challenged, that I could face adversity, that I could face an obstacle unlike any other I'd ever faced in my life, and I would be successful. That I could, that even after stumbling, that I could achieve. And my life has been a series of second chances and I really do believe in that, which is why we'll get to some of these topics, I hope, and why second chances is such a big deal to me when we're talking about racial and social issues, not just the economics of it, um, of, of policy and everything else, but very passionate about much of that. But I learned about having courage, while I was at the Citadel, courage to speak up for yourself and courage to speak up for others, to give a voice to the voiceless. I also learned about confidence because if we don't believe in ourselves, and no one's going to believe in us. And uh, I've been in business for 21 years after graduating in three years from the Citadel, top of my class. I've been in the business world for 21 years. And three years ago, I ran a special election for State House. I love what I'm doing at the State House. I am known to be a staunch fiscal conservative. I have one of the most fiscally conservative voting records in the entire General Assembly. But at the same time, um, I've achieved a lot. And I've achieved a lot because I've been bipartisan. I grew up with Reagan. I believe in reaching across the aisle to get things done. 
And uh, I've, I've been able to accomplish those things in, in a truly bipartisan way. I've had a bill signed into law that literally had every Democrat and every Republican voting for it. And so um, when we talk about you know, a lot of the division that's going on right now, the things that really disgust us about politics, why people are so pissed off about everything that's happening and they're angry and, and it's both sides have, are very upset about what's happening in this country. You know, I ask everyone just to take a deep breath, take a pause and see where we are as a nation that we really are at this crossroads and there are two paths that we can take and that I ask that we walk in the good path and we do it together. So I'm really excited to be here this afternoon and we'll take any and all of your questions. So, you know, this is, I'm gonna let Coleman start us off, but you know, yeah. I normally do this at the end, but absolutely, I am just so impressed with your story. I mean, mm -hmm. that is the story for so many South Carolinians and it just, you know, that's the American dream. So I am, I'm just so happy to have you on today. And I know, I mean, I know that sounds biased in a nonpartisan podcast, but absolutely it's awesome to hear your story and just to hear how hard you've worked and how hard you've got to where you, you know, you, you are today. So that's absolutely inspirational. You just got to have a dream and you got to have a goal and you just got to work to get there. And, and if I can do it, literally anybody can do it because I had no intention of ever going back to school was not was not gonna was not on my radar it was not gonna happen but it just so happened that other people had something else in mind and helped me get through a struggle a very real struggle and here we are today you know republican nominee for congress i can't believe it my kids can't believe it my parents sure as hell can't believe it they're like what's going on what happened to this you know this kid she's come so far but that's what life's all about right reaching for those goals and everything else and i'll, I'll let you go Coleman. i'm sorry <laughs> I just want to say that just from listening to your story, I think me and you have a lot more in common than uh, oh, I. Oh, really? My, my dad's a uh, graduate of the Citadel, and okay. uh, also my parents are both in education. So that's kind of the first topic I want to go with. Yeah, of course. Education, especially since you talked about going to Trident and um, mm -hmm. getting your high school diploma and then also taking dual enrollment classes. Yep. So kind of the first question I want to go into is both from the K through 12 um, education model to and also higher ed. Uh, the first part of that question would be, um, what's your plan for this time um, for our kids that are in K through 12 um, schools? Um, you know, a lot of people have been pushing for them to go back to school. Um, what, what's the right way to go about that? And the second thing is the other side of that, our college age kids like me and Ja'Cory, um, you know, the cost of higher education just keeps going farther and farther up. Um, and especially during COVID, um, it's been, you know, it's been even worse. People are taking uh, major financial hits. How do you, what's your plan for education both across the board? Yeah, no, of course. So we'll take the first half. And if I, don't, let me forget to answer the second question because I love answering questions. I love policy. Um, and because I am a high school dropout, I, I take education issues very seriously. I'm a product of South Carolina's public schools having dropped out and been through, been, been lost in the shuffle, so to speak. But um, but right now, if you look at South Carolina's record, we're, we're 23rd or 24th in the nation per student spending in, in K through 12. And so what that means is half the country spends more, the other, the other half the country spends less per student. And yet when you look at our outcomes, we're like 50th in the nation. We're behind Mississippi. Like, why is that happening when we're spending just as much on average as everybody else? We're spending, you know, we're right in the middle there and our outcomes are less. And so we've got to make sure that the money follows the student that we don't spend as much on administrative costs and bureaucracy. We need to get that money to the teachers, into the classrooms, into the schools, and make sure that it's spent effectively, more efficiently, more effectively. And the thing when you're talking about 
education right now, you know, there's a large percentage of students by the third grade in South Carolina can't read and can't do basic math. And that is enormously problematic because if you're not ready for middle school by sixth grade, you're not gonna be ready for high school. If you're not ready for high school, whether you graduate or not, you're not gonna have a skill set to get a job. And South Carolina, we got a pretty good unemployment rate pre-COVID-19. It was under 2%, at least in the first congressional district, it was 1.86%. As a state, it was less than the national average as well. It was two to 3%. Right now we're at 5%. We're doing three points better than the, than the national average right now. We're doing a really good job of getting people back to work. But the problem is a lot of folks, they don't have the education and the skill set. So when I talk about education, you gotta talk about equality on one side, right? Treating everybody fairly, regardless of their zip code, their color, their skin, their gender, their orientation, all those things. But we don't talk enough about equity. And that's giving the students who have the greatest needs the resources that they need so that regardless of where they're coming from, what zip code they live in, how much money their parents have, they have the same resources. They get the same quality of education as someone who's in rich suburbia versus, versus poor urban or, or rural or whatever, whatever have you. And so that means making sure students and schools have basic internet, like get, getting internet, having computers and iPads, having quality teachers in the classroom, having kids with special needs getting what they need, and it might mean getting them nutrition. Right now with COVID-19, one of the things we're really worried about, the kids who don't have, their, are not getting their needs met at home, and that might even be just basic three meals a day right now, and, and kids that don't have internet, that aren't going to school, and I have kids right now that are homeschooling, which is why my internet might go in and out because of all the devices on the internet right now, but I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm, I work and their dad works and, and we're trying to make it happen, but it's incredibly hard. So I can't imagine for parents that have multiple jobs and they're, they're single working parents trying to make it work. And so um, it's really important that the money gets spent the appropriate measures. I'm a big person, I'm a big fan of school choice and opportunities in education, particularly right now during COVID for kids that are at home and parents are working multiple jobs if the parents, the parents should have the right to make the decision on whether or not their kids get homeschooled, virtual school, a hybrid option. I know for me and my family, we're dying to get a hybrid option. I'm okay with them not going five days a week and doing part of it at home, but I need them in the classroom. They need that social interaction. Um, I need to be able to work. I mean, there are those things that happen. And so um, I think that parents should have the choice on how their kids are educated, particularly now. And so when it comes to opportunities, whether it's private school, public school, charter school, I'm going to support, support all the options for every working family, whatever they want to do to make the decision for their child should be their decision to make. It should not be the federal government's or state or local. They should have every opportunity to get an education. I think side of it, the higher ed. Well, I, I was going to comment on something you said that I thought was a good comment, and um, that's on making education, in South, especially in South Carolina, especially in your district. Yeah. Um, I just think about, you know, growing up, I used to go to the Citadel Games with my dad, and right behind uh -huh. the Citadel was Burke High School. Um, and you got to think about those kids. Are those kids really getting the same education that they would get either at Academic Magnet or Wando? I mean, they're not. I mean, they're not. And, and in some cases, we spend more per student at some of those struggling schools, and we've got to do a better job of figuring out why that is. And I believe that the reason why is that by third grade, if they don't have those basic skills, reading and math, they're going to have, they're going to struggle, they're going to get even further behind by the time they get to middle school. And so the other, the other the other side of it, too, that I, that I neglected to mention was that the vocational opportunities. Not every kid needs to go to college. I mean, no offense. I'm glad y'all are in school and we're in college, you know, doing getting educated, higher education. That's great. No, but not every, not no every, we agree with you. Yeah, not every student needs to go get a two or four year degree. So one example I've been talking about, I met a student uh, a couple of months ago, about three or four months ago. He's 19, graduated from high school. 
When he was 16, he went to code.org, taught himself how to code, took some coding classes. By the time he was a senior in high school, he was working 30 hours a week as a programmer and going to school for eight to 10 hours a week to finish up his high school diploma. The kid is 19, he's not going to college. He's making 75 to $80,000 a year as a computer programmer in Mount Pleasant in Charleston County, no intentions of going to get to school. He's gonna be making six figures in the next couple of years. Uh, he had a talent, got the education, did it himself, and now he's working an incredible job, making more than twice as much as the average South Carolinian at the age of 19. The same goes with someone who wants to get a welding certificate. If you can, you have that skill set, um, and you're a welder when you're 18, you graduate from high school, you can make $75,000 a year as a welder. You want to go to a technical college and get your nuclear welding certificate, you're making over a hundred grand a year when you do that. Um, plumbing and electrical, I don't know if you've gotten any plumbing fixed or gotten any electrical work done, but you pay a lot of money when they come to visit. It's about 90 bucks an hour. And then that's on, that's on top of all the other parts and pieces and labor for the fix that you have to have to pay for when they come over. And so um, there are a lot of opportunities for people that don't have a four-year degree. And, and I, I know growing up back in the 90s, vocational, we talk about vocational education, that we needed it, we needed it. Well, look where we are now. We still need it. It's not getting done, not getting done enough. Now, Charleston County has got a lot of, a lot of things in the, in the hopper to, to make those improvements now and they've got funding and they've got great opportunities. Well, now we're, we're headed in this pandemic where people aren't getting together and it's, well, how do you teach these skill sets and how do we get people educated? How do we find the students that aren't showing up to online school because they don't have the internet? How do you get them the internet? I mean, it's, it's one thing after the other, other and it's an enormous challenge, but we cannot let these students get behind and that's what's happening right now and that's why especially for those that are vulnerable either uh, economically or don't have the resources don't have that equity in their education programs right now it's it's a tremendous problem and those the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and we're seeing the same thing in education right now because of the pandemic then on the other side of it you've got higher education higher learning one of the things I learned as a state lawmaker is that we don't do a good enough job as a state holding our colleges and universities accountable, particularly when they say, hey, we're not going to raise tuition. So we give them a little more money in the bucket. We subsidize higher education for them because they've asked for it. And then they go and raise tuition on students and then they do what they say they're not going to do. That has been a problem over the last couple of years. And so when we're talking about funding for higher education, I think it's extremely important. And this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. I mean... But when we're doing that, we need to have measures in place that at least freeze tuition. You want it, you want a little money, more money for, for your bucket and higher education. Well, then at the very least you could do is freeze the tuition for that four years for that student when they enroll and, and, and have those measures in place. Oh, goodness. Uh, did I lose you guys? No, we hear you. Oh, you hear me? Okay. I, my thing just went off the screen. But, okay, there you are. But that we have measures in place that hold... Um, and Lander University does a really good job of this. And I think the Citadel does a decent job as well. But we've had problems with some of our colleges raising tuition when they say they're not going to and they want to come back, and they want to ask for more money. Uh, and so we've got to make sure that uh, that we, when we are subsidizing education that that we hold those institutions accountable. And one of the things that I've advocated for, and this is at the federal level, and I did this at the beginning of COVID, but we've got to allow students to write off tuition. Yeah. Yeah. I'll cut in there because you, you've raised a good point that I want to talk about is COVID. That is something I think you've hit on hugely is how we've done. If you, you look at the president, um, you look at 
um, Congress, you look at the state of South Carolina, you look at the governor, how do you rate um, our government's response to COVID? Well, and I'll do a follow Yeah, and it's threefold. Right now, there's a federal, the state, and a local response. As a state, I believe we've done remarkably well given the circumstances. When you look all around the country, you've got these the COVID maps right now where, where 37 states are having a second wind of outbreak. The state of South Carolina, not only is our, our unemployment dramatically decreasing, we have 5.1% unemployment. Nationally, unemployment is 7.9%. Um, we have, uh, we've done it. We've had a great, there are employers looking for employees right now. I mean, we, we employers are having problems, they're trouble, having trouble hiring people for many jobs right now. And so we are doing a good job as a state. Now, overall, when you look at the federal, state, and local response, many regulations, particularly in the healthcare space, have inhibited, particularly our federal government from responding in a faster, more timely uh way. So when COVID-19 happened, the first thing Governor McMaster did, one of the first things was to lift the certificate of need laws here in South Carolina. Certificate of need laws are regulations that are arbitrary and burdensome. So for instance, it limits the number of beds a hospital can have. Why would you, why would you be okay? I mean, that isn't a Republican or Democrat. Like, why would you limit the number of beds a hospital could have? Why would you limit the number of beds a nursing home could have? And so it inhibits our, our ability to respond faster. The governor saw that. He temporarily lifted those regulations. Well, guess who wrote a bill a year or two ago to permanently ban those burdensome, stupid regulations that cause monopolies in the market and inhibit our ability to respond, especially when there's a crisis? Well, I did. Okay, something that I've worked on. And you see it at the federal level. So when COVID-19 happened, one of the silver linings that it did for us is it showed us that 85% of our active ingredients in pharmaceuticals are actually made in China. Now, why is that? You dig a little bit deeper and you realize the regulatory controls, the regulations that the government puts on that industry has pushed them so far, they're overseas having these things manufactured in other countries. Wouldn't it be much better for manufactured here, particularly when you're, there's a crisis, we're in a pandemic, we need all these things, all these uh, pharmaceuticals being made, be much better if we were here. So I'm a huge fan for every new regulation the government wants to add, let's repeal two. And this shouldn't be a Republican or Democrat issue. This is a human issue. So how do we respond? And then at the local level, we have something here in the state of South Carolina called home rule. And so, uh, you know, some people, you know, Joe Biden wants a federal mask mandate for everybody everywhere in the United States. Well, if you live in a farm in rural South Carolina and you, you, don't, you don't get out as much in the metropolitan area, it's not really going to apply to you as much. But here in the state of South Carolina, we have something called home rule. And so home rule allows our counties, municipalities, cities, and towns to make decisions in an emergency because the government closest to the people is a government that governs best. And so you see like the city of Charleston, they put a mask mandate in and, and Mount Pleasant has done the same thing. Charleston County has been a hotspot for COVID, but in other places they haven't had to do that. Like in Berkeley County, people live further apart. They're not as close together. They don't have as much of an outbreak. And so and even when you look at COVID-19, how we're doing as a state, we're one of the few states that's not having a second, a huge second wave. Um, our cases are 10% or lower on average in terms of the number of people we're testing and the number of positive tests that we're having right now. We've done a very good job of balancing health and safety and allowing local governments to help make those decisions based on where the hotspots are. And then at the same time, allowing businesses that be open, operate, and getting people back to work. So 
as South Carolinians, Republican, Independent, and Democrat, we should all be very proud of the work that we've done together. We don't have a lot of the violence that's happening. We've had a few nights of violence down here and other places, but by and large, we're a peaceful community. We want unity. We want people to work and be contributing members of society. And we want our kids educated. We want everybody to be happy, healthy, live, work, and retire in the best place in the world, which is right here in South Carolina. And so um, I, I want to take a moment and just praise everybody and give hope for the future that we have done some very good things. Um, of course, things could be improved. I would love to see rapid widespread testing. I think that within 10 minutes, you should know if you have COVID or not. And there are tests out there um, that cost like $8 and you can get that test. And, you know, so, you know, we've got to get further along with our technology and testing. We've got to get it more widespread, more rapid, but by and large, given what we were thrown at us this year, we are in a much better place than we've been and, and that I would have ever imagined facing, facing this. If you look at all the statistics and the data that right now, we're doing a remarkable job given the circumstances that we're all living under. So this is my last question. I'll let Colvin go. So do you feel that we should wear a mask? You know, that's one of the biggest topics that we've no, I do believe we about. Need I, need, I do believe people need to be wearing masks. So, um, but I don't necessarily believe the government should be regulating that policy as a statewide or national mandate. That decision needs to be made locally by businesses, by, by local municipalities and cities, they can make that decision because it's not, not something that would apply to everybody. Um, I live in the city of Charleston. I got COVID-19 and I was wearing a mask when I got COVID-19. Um, no one did any contract tasting, testing with me, uh, tracing with me. I don't know where I was exposed to it. No one told me I, that they exposed me to it. I gave it to one of my children and the other child did not get it, but it took me three months to feel recovered from COVID-19. One of the lingering symptoms I had, I had chest pain, I had swollen ankles, and I had a tremendous debilitating fatigue for three months. And, and I gotta tell you, I don't ever wanna get it again. And I don't want anybody else to get it. So I encourage everyone, wear a mask. When you're in, when you're in public or in close spaces, when you can't be six feet apart from people, we ought, to be, we ought to be wearing masks. Now, I've got antibodies, and supposedly they're in my T cells. My body's going to remember, have a memory of it. But there, I've heard about one or, one or two cases around the world where somebody got it again. They think that 10 to 20% of people uh, who've had it may be vulnerable to getting it a second time. But by and large, people are not, don't seem to be getting it again right now. We, just, we don't know enough, but um, I wear my, my mask wherever I go. I know I'm not as likely to get it, but I think it's important to set a good example. I think, I think it's, we've talked so much about um, healthcare has really been, uh, this virus has just emphasized mm -hmm. uh, the country's focus on healthcare, especially in, and especially with the uh, Supreme Court um, confirmation hearings, uh, which I don't think is applicable to your race because, you know, as, if I, don't our, say, I don't get a vote on it. <laughs> don't know, you know, the U.S. House yeah. not uh, involved in that process. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk about the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Republicans have been very, they have pushed and pushed and pushed on repealing and replacing. If you got a chance to repeal or fix, what would be your plan? And the reason I want to ask this now is because because of COVID, because of uh, these Senate races, we do have some Republican senators that are not in favor of repealing. Uh, maybe Susan. Yeah, and, and, and so healthcare, much like our out of control spending at the federal level is caused, the problems are caused by both sides. 
So Democrats gave us Obamacare. It increased healthcare prices exponentially. Republicans promised to repeal it, but then they didn't repeal it, number one. And two, if they repealed it, didn't have anything to replace it with. So I am a, I am a free market person. I'm a fiscal conservative. I've got a 100% record of voting to lower taxes. I'm, I'm very much in that fiscal conservative space. I believe most, the average American is in that same space. We've got to balance our checkbooks, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Um, you know, you can't go into debt like we are right now because you wouldn't be able to afford your rent or your mortgage. And so it's really important to recognize, one, this problem is caused by both sides and, and neither side has come up with a solution. Now, I would vote to repeal Obamacare, but we've got to have, we got to have measures in place, which means lifting many regulations in the healthcare space. So one of the things that we must do is you've got to allow uh, insurance purchasing across state lines. You've got to have competition and we don't have real competition here in South Carolina. Um, if you want to get insurance, you have one or two providers you can get a quotes from and like, that's it. Um, the other thing we've got to do is, is lift the, the, the arbitrary financial caps under HSA or health savings accounts. We've got to allow people to pay their, pay their health care premiums out of those accounts as well, which is a tax shelter and allows you to pay those medical bills. I don't think medical should be taxed at all and, as well. And then one of the other things that is important is price transparency in pharmaceuticals and in surgical procedures and patient outpatient. So you know where you're actually paying. And you compare, compare apples to apples. We also have to relift lift certificate of need laws in every state that has them. There are a handful of states that still have them because that creates a hospital monopoly. So when you go to get a carpal tunnel at the hospital, it's gonna cost you thousands of dollars. But to go just down the street to a surgery center, it's gonna cost you a couple hundred dollars. There's a big difference. And because hospitals have this monopoly because of our certificate of need laws, we don't have real competition in the market. So if you were to repeal Obamacare and you only have the hospital as an option and no other alternative, you don't have a free market. You don't have competition. So we need to have competition in the marketplace. The quality of service, quality of care goes up. Prices come down. That's the way the market works. And it's based on supply and demand. And so um, the other thing that Obamacare does, and so whether or not we, we keep Obamacare or repeal it, there are some measures I think that we can also take. So HSA accounts, the price transparency. The other thing that when I was starting my own company in 2008, I had two very small kids. I was pregnant with one kid and had another had my other child was two but i couldn't afford cobra as a as someone starting her own business it was like 1500 to 1900 dollars a month for us me and the kids and the family couldn't afford it so i got something called catastrophic insurance well under obamacare right now you can't get catastrophic insurance it cost me 250 for a family of four you can't get it if you're over the age of 30. well that doesn't really make a lot of sense why are we putting these arbitrary rules and caps and regulations on things that should be accessible to everybody in the marketplace. And so I do believe that small parts can make a big difference. And if we can get pharmaceuticals made here in our country versus in China, we've got to repeal all these regulations. So whether Republicans repeal it or, or we keep it, I mean, there are things we can do within the, the, within the framework that we have now, or if we repeal it, we've got to allow the free market to work and all competition in the marketplace in every industry so that the quality of care goes up and prices go down. I guess, I guess a follow-up, yes or no question um, on this. So just to be clear on this, if, yeah. you, if you are repealing it, you, you will prioritize the need for replacement. Yeah, I mean, I would replace it all day long. The other thing that I didn't mention that's been talked about in this race a lot is pre-existing conditions. I don't support a single measure that cuts people out with pre-existing conditions. So I actually have a pre-existing condition and it's something that I've been denied uh, healthcare coverage for. I remember one time a couple of years ago, I was trying to get insurance. I, my, my 
policy had lapsed. I was getting on a new policy. I think I was getting off a of catastrophic insurance and getting onto a normal insurance plan. And I had to wait nine months before I would be qualified to purchase that insurance policy. Um, and so any plan that I would support that replaced Obamacare or was in part and parcel of, we've got to make sure that we cover people with pre-existing conditions. That's extremely, extremely important to do, regardless of what we do moving forward. We are doing so good with time and I want to keep moving on. <laughs> you know, um, when we're thinking about the environment, I live very close to Myrtle Beach and um, Coleman does as well. And, you know, that's one of the most important things of our summers, of our livelihood. And one thing that we've seen huge in your race, I followed Joe Cunningham and Katie's race all the way from the beginning when Katie was running against Mark Sanford. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest things in their race was offshore drilling. So I want, I have two questions. I want to make it as clear as possible so the viewers can um, hear it. Do you support offshore drilling? That's the first question. And the second question is, what would you have voted in Joe Cunningham's bill to ban all, all offshore drilling everywhere um, across the country? Yeah, so I'm 100% against offshore drilling. I always have been. It's not like it's an issue that I flip-flopped on. I have 100% rating with conservation voters of South Carolina. Higher than, shield your ears, higher than most Democrats, okay? So I, um, I, I, I even compost. I make dirt in my backyard. I mean, I've got a pile, and it's beautiful dirt, and it's great in a garden or when you're reseeding your lawn and everything. Um, but I've been a conservationist all my life, and it's something that's really important. The very first bill I ever filed as a state lawmaker was literally my fourth day in the chamber. I filed an anti-offshore drilling measure. Um, my, the very first rally I ever spoke at as a state lawmaker was an anti-offshore drilling rally. I even stood shoulder to shoulder with Democrat Joe Cunningham in December of 2018 at an anti-seismic testing event. I mean, this is, a, this is an issue that Republicans and Democrats largely, particularly in coastal districts, coastal beach areas, we agree on and we really shouldn't be attacking people on. Um, I've written op-eds in national press, I've done national interviews, advocating and lobbying the, the administration to do something about this. And as a state lawmaker, the state of South Carolina has effectively banned offshore drilling off our coast. We do it every year in the budget via a provision. And when the president announced his 10-year ban on offshore drilling, I was invited down to that speech because he knows how much I have, how hard I have worked to get a ban off South Carolina's coast. Now, my problem with, with, with Congressman Joe Cunningham's legislation is that he acts like it's a bill that was signed into law. Um, he did the same thing with the Great American Outdoors Act. When the president signed that bill into law, it was actually Senator Cory Gardner's bill that was signed into law, and it wasn't the companion bill in the House. And so I think that it's really important that we deal in facts and not fiction. But my problem with his anti-offshore drilling bill is that it will never become law because it can't pass both chambers. It can't pass the House and the Senate to get to the president's desk. And so if we're going to do offshore drilling, if we're going to do a ban of offshore drilling off our coast and other state coasts, the way that we have to do it is to be in a truly bipartisan way. And the only way you can get that right now, the only way you can get Republicans on board is my belief is you inject a level of federalism into the debate. Give states the right to say that they do not want to have drilling off their coast. That is the and only way that you can get and I'll follow up with you. I think that's important that you made that comment. It mm -hmm. is very important. So I, I want people to understand Joe Cunningham's bill banned offshore drilling everywhere. And, you know, right. when you say vote yes or no, 
that is very important. If you're a South Carolina um, Congress member or a congresswoman, you, you, you shouldn't be voting to ban offshore drilling in Alabama. I think it's very important that people understand and our viewers understand what that bill is. I know he, he's hit you on that a lot, but it's very important for viewers to know that if you're in South Carolina, you're voting to ban offshore drilling in South Carolina, not in um, Florida, because you don't live there. So I, I just want to make I'll that cut, comment. I'll cut in right here too and say, personally, I, I am a supporter of that bill, but mm -hmm. I, I think you raise an important point. Uh, Joe Cunningham's bill didn't make it through because it's still on Mitch McConnell's desk. The Senate did not want to take that up. I actually said- They're not going to. Yeah, they're not going to. Because it's not the other day, and we, yeah. uh, he came to our class, which was very fun. He's a, he's a very great person. He's a great guy. He's so and great. He, he was talking about how some, you know, 1% of every bill that goes to the Senate actually makes it, becomes law. So my question for you, kind of going off of that is, if you, it's a, it's a high possibility that if you're elected, you could be elected into a uh, democratic controlled house. So how do you navigate through that, through that atmosphere? Uh, Cause you, you're gonna have to bring people with- Oh, hundred percent. Well, the good thing is I actually have experience doing this. So while I am Republican, I've got a, I'm a staunch fiscal conservative. I have a great fiscally conservative record that is unmatched uh, even next to Joe Cunningham, who's raised, who's voted to raise a lot of taxes and has supported the Green New Deal, even though he says he doesn't, he has. Um, his voting record shows it. All uh, those are problematic. But the thing that I've done as a, as a state lawmaker, I grew up with Reagan. And I grew up in the low country where the difference between rich and poor is literally black and white. And I understand that there are vast differences and we've got to make those up somehow and that as leaders that we've got to reach across the aisle and find some common ground. And um, as a Republican earlier this year, in the midst of a very abbreviated session um, and in the midst of COVID, I actually passed a prison reform bill. And when that bill passed out of the state house and made it on its way onto the governor's desk to be signed, every single Democrat and every single Republican voted for it. Now I'll tell you the bill I started with was not the bill that got signed into law. It changed over time. We modified it. We made compromises. We, we made the bill actually better in, in a way that both Democrats and Republicans could support. And one of the things that it did is it not only did it uh, ban the shackling of pregnant inmates, ban the shackling of pregnant inmates and labor and delivery and allowed them to have their children come visit them once a week, giving them an incentive so that when they get out to be productive members of society and not go back to jail, not go back to prison. It provided feminine hygiene products for our female inmates. And so it did a lot of, it did a lot more good by the end of it, but I did that because I worked across the aisle. And when you have a bill that is, that is supported by a hundred percent of your colleagues on both sides of the aisle, that's when you know you're in the right spot. That's when you know you're truly a bipartisan voice, an independent voice to get things done. Well, that's the way you have to approach everything, particularly when that chamber is controlled by another party. You're not ever going to get anything done without that. And as a Republican, I'm really proud of the things that I've worked on, both from law enforcement training, trying to get them better training, that bill that I drafted, uh, my co-sponsor, I asked Representative, Democrat Representative Marvin Pendarvis to be my co-sponsor on it. I think it's really important that we go to our colleagues on the other side of the aisle and, and we, we go there and we get their input and we make it better so that we can do some good together. And that's an, a very important distinction. I don't want to just make headlines and make a name for myself. I actually want to get things done. And that's the record that I'm taking with me from the Statehouse and would take that same zest, that same spirit, that same work ethic, 
to Congress. So. Well, I think that was a great, that's a, you know, that is really a great answer. I think, you know, me and Ja'Cory, we both work for uh, Congressman Rice in the uh -huh. of 2018. We, we both know that being a man, the minority, I mean, it sucks. Um, it's so tough. It's very raise, tough. You raise an important point that compromise is very important. The bill that you propose might change a lot or a little bit in order to make sure that it's able to pass through both houses and eventually hopefully be signed by the president. Um, right. That's what I would do to, 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 to Democrat Joe Cunningham's offshore drilling bill. I would take it. I would, I would rewrite it in a way that gives states a chance to, to have a seat at the table and allow them to make that decision, allowing the federal government to have to allow states to make that decision for themselves. That's when you get Republicans and Democrats on board and doing something together. Because if you are a conservationist, if you want to see true racial and social justice or work on environmental issues or cut spending, you got to do it in a way that everybody can get on board with. And that's is hugely important right now, given the divisions that we're seeing all across the country and, and folks, want, some people want to be martyrs and it's just not worth it. We've got to work together. We've got to find a way to work together. And I'm really proud of my record as a Republican working on many, many of those issues that often aren't our sweet spot. Um, you know, the coastal areas of South Carolina, particularly this congressional district, were very independent minded. And, you know, we got two more policy questions and we're, you know, we're going to get out, we're going to get out of policy because there's a lot we've, we've touched <laughs> on. A lot. So I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to follow back with Colvin and let him ask a question. We're going to move on. But, you know, one thing that you've talked about is the president reform bill. And, you know, I'm actually doing an interview with the state. Um, later to talk about the president reform bill in the next 40 minutes. So let's talk about that. We look at police brutality and, you know, I look at the country and I see if you're Republican, you hate black folks. If you're um, Democrat, then you hate law enforcement. And we all know that is not completely true. Um, you know, some of my closest people that I work with on a very close basis are Republican and some are Democrat and they will tell you that's absolutely a lie. So with the civil unrest in our country, as Congresswoman Nancy Mays, how do you bring Charleston together um, with so much division in our country? Well, you follow the lead of, of our community, our black community, particularly when Mother Emanuel happened five years ago, uh, those families uh, exhibited such grace and forgiveness at a time where a lot of us didn't feel uh, the perpetrator, that, that racist, violent criminal who took nine innocent lives and deserved that kind of grace. And you look to them as an example for unifying and bringing the community get together. And they did that. They got blacks and whites and everybody together. And I know that at that, that time I was a private citizen. And long before I ever decided to run for office, I, as a private citizen, helped start a scholarship for African-American students coming out of the AME community. It's important for us to set the example on those issues. And so um, long before George Floyd ever happened, I was working on my prison reform bill. I've worked on criminal justice reform. I have legislation that is very, very, very bipartisan on criminal data. So when Dylan Roof, after Parkland, Florida, when Dylan Roof went to go buy a gun, I did some research on this. Uh, closing the Charleston loophole wouldn't have, have prevented him from getting a gun. That would not have happened. But what I learned in the process was was that our criminal data in the state of South Carolina, as it is in many states, is in all different places. It could be in the county, it could be in DNR, it could be in a state trooper database, SLED, uh, municipalities, you name it, all over the place. And they don't talk, and that information isn't shared. 
So one of the very first things I did is I went to my colleagues on both sides of the aisle and I said, hey, I've got this idea to put all of the data, all the criminal information in one place so that in 30 seconds or 60 seconds within a single database, you could pull up somebody's criminal record and, and make sure that a Dylan Roof doesn't get to purchase a firearm next time he tries to go and do that. And, and that bill is hugely uh, bipartisan. I've got uh, some, some things that we've got to modify on that legislation to get SLED fully on board, and we're working through those things. But that is a Democrat and Republican issue. When I did my law enforcement training long before George Floyd, you know, we don't need to defend, we, need to, we don't need to defund, we need to defend our law enforcement and we need to give them more funding uh, so that they're, they're, uh, they get better training. If they need mental health counseling because of the, 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 the strenuity that the, the challenges that they face every day, being in seeing violent crimes and having to chase people down or, or seeing gruesome scenes and those kinds of things, we need to provide them the resources that, sources that they need and we need to be able to give them the pay that they need, the education, the training that they need so that they can be successful and be good members of society. And we need to have more uh, community programs in those communities that are struggling and that are distrustful of the police. And so um, when I did my law enforcement training bill, I went to Representative Marvin Pendarvis and I said, hey, we got a problem with training. We can do a better job and I think we can do it this way. And he agreed and we wrote this, did this bill together. And, and so anytime I've worked on these issues, especially social and racial, it's been really important for me as a lawmaker to go to the other side, talk to my black and African-American colleagues, get their opinions, modify the legislation, edit it, and, and draft it in a way that, is a, that appeals to everybody, not just one side or the other, because it's really about getting things done and, and not making a headline. Like I'm, I'm truly about how do I improve every single community, because I love the low country, I love growing up here, um, and my loyalty lies here. And I know how tough some families struggle. The difference between rich and poor is literally black and white in many of our communities. And so what can we do? What example can we set? What legislation can we draft? And these are all things that, that I've worked on. I mean, throughout my tenure as a state lawmaker over the last three years, I'm very proud of that record. And I don't want to stop doing it, which is why I want to go to Congress. I want to do more for more people here in the low country. That, those are great points. And I'm glad you pointed out like specific pieces of legislation that you've yeah. worked on. Um, that's just yeah. really important to know. That's just not your thought. That's your action. Uh, oh, yeah, 100%. So, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is a pretty contentious topic. Okay, goodness. Uh, we want to talk about Paris Island. Uh, oh, my goodness. But, you know, Why is it contentious? It's not, I mean, it's. So this is, this is the question. This is the question. Uh, so you've hit Joe Cunningham on it several times. However, mm -hmm. Senator Graham and Senator Scott uh, voted almost identically uh, with Congressman Cunningham. Would you extend, uh, would you say that Congress, I mean, uh, Senator Scott and uh, Senator Graham made the same mistake? So here's the thing. When NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, actually came through for the first vote in the United States Senate, Paris Island was not in the bill. They didn't vote on it the first time it came through. It then went to the U.S. House. So when it was in the House, that's when uh, Democrat Joe Cunningham's very liberal California colleagues inserted this uh, language into the bill, identifying Paris Island in it. Now, Paris Island is one of the most historic military bases, not only in South Carolina, but I would argue in the United States. Um, it was it was been around since the late 1800s. Paris Island itself as a training depot started in 1915. And there is historic significance here. It is, it is 6,000 jobs. It's almost $800 million in revenue to the economy. Well, Paris Island was put into the NDAA when it was in the House. Now this military base resides in Democrat Joe Cunningham's district. 
not in Ralph Norman, not in Tom Rice, not in Joe Wilson's district. This is his district. And he had an obligation to see that it was in there and let his colleagues know that they were voting on that. Now, either he didn't read the bill and didn't know it was in it or his staff didn't read it and didn't know it was in it. I mean, neither of those answers, that's not, those aren't good answers. I mean, this is a military base. I grew up in Charleston and I saw the devastation that the naval-based closure has done to the economy. It's not even fully recovered. If you look at North Charleston now, it's still 20 years later, has not fully recovered from the economic losses it sustained when that naval base was closed. And so if you're gonna be representative of this district, you gotta represent everybody. And you sure as hell can't miss that Paris Island, one of the most historic, biggest bases in your district, was put at risk in this legislation specifically mentioned. And so we just found out about four to six weeks ago via an interview with the commandant of the Marine Corps. I mean, it's not like I, it's not like I made this up, but his comments um, said that Paris Island was at risk um, of closure because of the way the legislation and amendments were written and so and put into the NDAA. So then two weeks ago, Congressman Ralph Norman and Joe Wilson filed legislation called the Paris Island Protection Act. And so um, Joe Cunningham for weeks now has been calling me a liar and essentially calling the comment on the Marine Corps a liar too, but is also trying to co-sponsor this legislation. So you can't have it both ways. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You can't say Paris Island doesn't need saving and then literally try to co-sponsor the bill to literally save Paris Island. And so um, I find the whole thing ironic, but and I've been personally attacked throughout this entire campaign. This is nothing new. Uh, me and my family were attacked when we had COVID. Um, I've been attacked and called a liar throughout this entire process. And I just want to remind people I deal with facts and not fiction. And we're not always going to agree on an issue, but you're always going to know where I stand. I'm always going to be honest. I'm not going to lie to get elected. And I come from a family, almost everybody serves. I'm one of the few members of my family that did not go active duty military after college. I have family that's deployed right now. My father served for 28 years in the United States Army, had three tours of combat. I'm endorsed by dozens and dozens of military uh, veterans, including uh, General Livingston, Medal of Honor recipient, and uh, former Marine who worked and trained at Paris Island. And so I take this issue seriously. And this was this, this, was a, this was a big deal and uh, they're working to fix it. And his colleagues that don't even represent Paris Island or this district shouldn't be the ones fixing an issue that he created. And yet here we are and they're doing his job for him. It's enormously problematic. We, this is, this is a, it's a huge deal. Representative Mays, I really, I really hate that we're getting to the end of our interview because I really enjoy speaking with you, but we are, we are done with policy and we're getting into the, we're getting into the fun stuff, what I enjoy. Okay. So, <laughs> one question I, I have too, but I, I want to ask this question. Uh -huh. um, you know, the president of the United States, the vice president um, endorse you, Nikki Haley. How does that make you feel? Like, how does that make you feel as just, you know, just an everyday citizen of South Carolina? It's pretty humbling, I got to tell you. I mean, seeing where I came from, how far I've made it. Um, I've stumbled a couple times. Every time I've stumbled, I've gotten back up and, and done a better job and made myself a better person and worked hard. And so when I see those endorsements come through, um, it's almost like you can't believe that it's happening. Like, I don't even believe it, right? And so I've just come such a long way. And to see where I am today, 25 years later, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable, but it speaks to what your comments were earlier about the American dream. 
And if you have a dream and I, I'm a dreamer, like I've got, you know, I, I dream and I set goals, but if you have a dream and you set the goals to achieve that dream, um, if I can make it, anybody, literally anybody can make it. And uh, if you work hard and you set those goals, any, you can do anything you set your mind to. And it's just really important that I share that story with people because I talked to a group of students earlier today, high school students even, and I shared my story because uh, it's such a critical moment right now. But if we, everyone's got a story and if you know, hey, if I stumble, I can pick myself back up again and I can be successful. I can face these obstacles. Yes, you can have some. One of my home. Okay, so uh, they've got Halloween candy. Someone dropped off Halloween candy. So I'm like, yes, it's a school break. School just got done. So I'm like, yes, you can have a treat. But um, but what's uh, that? Tell them we said hey. I I ate the Reese's and the peanut M and M's. So I got, I got another candy first, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's deeply humbling. So. And I, and I know Coleman has a question. He's itching to ask you this one, but this is a cool one. Um, Christy Johnson, a teacher at um, Wofford, her son is going to Citadel for the first year. So one question that she commented on Facebook and I thought mm -hmm. was really cool. Do you think her son can survive? <laughs> Of course he can survive and he's going to be just fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, uh, I'll send her a book. She can read about it and, and see what his experience will be like. But if I can make it there, literally anybody can, can as well. It's tough. I mean, I know when my, my dad dropped me off at school on August 24th, 1996, he shook my hand and he said, Nancy, don't call him if you want to quit. Just put on your shoes and start walking. And that's how he dropped me off at the Citadel. So I'm like, if I can make it through that, then literally I think anybody can do that too. But it's tough. It's tough. Let's talk about that. I want to, um, this is a question I wanted to ask you, uh, especially for, you know, we're two guys. We, we want to ask something for the ladies too. Uh, mm -hmm. You're the first woman to graduate from the Citadel. Uh, and you, and from my research, you'd be the first woman to represent the first congressional district since 1941 uh, when a woman uh, was elected uh, to serve after her husband, um, I think he died. He passed away. Uh, I think she finished his term. I don't know if there was an election or not, but yeah. Okay. So what, I mean, you obviously so far have been a trailblazer um, for the state in your life at the Citadel. Uh, so what would be your advice or your message to young women in the state who are maybe struggling to overcome obstacles? Uh, what's just some life advice? To, to have the courage to stand up, to set a goal and to work to achieve it. And if, if there are young women out there that want to run for office, we can't win if we don't run. And it's going to take many, many, many of us to get out there and do it. We can't be CEOs of businesses if we don't try to start a business ourselves and so, uh, or work our way up the corporate ladder as well. And so you just got to get out there and grind and do it and not be, not be afraid of the consequences. And I've been a, in a lot of awkward positions where I was, I was just at an event the other day and I was talking to someone and they didn't want to look at, at me. They wanted to look at the, the, the male person that I was with. And I was like, well, this is something that sometimes we see in corporations or in, in business work from time to time. And I, you just got to go for it. And I went for it, right? And, and had that conversation and got them to look me in the eye and everything else. But those things happen. It's really up to us to not be afraid and, and push forward. No matter when there's a door slammed in your face or somebody says no, you've got to say, well, watch me. Let me show you how. And just keep going and going and going until you achieve those dreams. Well, and this is our last question. And, you know, then we can get to our 
you know, just ending our podcast. And so I'm actually happy to ask the last question. But, you know, I know you love Charleston. I know, you know, we've talked with you today about how much you love it. So just one of the coolest questions that we get asked at the end, what's your favorite thing? I mean, it could be a restaurant, a place about the first congressional district. What makes Nancy Mays just happy? You know, I love every bit about this district from the beaches to downtown to just, I went to the Waffle House the other day. I mean, it's just like, it's such a remarkable place, but I think the greatest thing I love about the Low Country is its people. Like it doesn't matter where I go, whether someone's voting for me or not, just the kindness that we treat and respect we usually treat with one another. That's what's so important. And we carry that with us in everything that we do. Um, and that's really, I think, a tribute just the great people here. And that's why people move here. That's why, that's why we're seeing an enormous number of people every day moving here, 40 to 50 people a day moving to the low country because it's such a great community. Um, and we come together when, when things are tough and we struggle, we really do come together and work together. My answer to that question, uh, I don't know if you've ever been here, uh, there, but um, I like Hunting Island State Park. Uh-huh. Down in Beaufort County. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I was just down in Beaver County yesterday. So. The lighthouse is amazing. The beaches yep. are amazing. Uh, there's no other place like it in South Carolina. Now a pluff mud. I mean, you know, you just can't, you literally can't beat it. Can't beat it. And, and before we close out, I'll let Ja'Cory give his answer and then he can uh, make his final comment. But I just want to say that one of the reasons we started this podcast was to give people an outlet, an unbiased uh, media outlet where we have both sides represented, both sides are asking questions. Yeah. And, you know, I had never met you before. And I will say from this interview, you know, I have a completely new um, view of you as a person. Um, it's when you sit down and talk with someone about the real issues, uh, you can't always trust the media. Right. They try to show you a side. And the, and the main reason we started this podcast was so that w we could have a balanced media outlet, um, especially for our young people out there. Yeah, of course. Who don't know much about South Carolina politics. Mm -hmm. So we thank you for sitting with us today. Um, and we thank you for all your time and, and all the answers and also yeah. for answering the tough questions that no oh one. My God. Yeah. You literally AMA you ask me literally anything and I'm good to go, you know, and that's part of the process too. So. And, you know, I, I had, I'm sorry, I had to Google the place I, I like the most because okay. I could never remember the name of it, but it's Red Eyes House. Oh my and goodness. That's a good one. <laughs> right on the water. Right on the water. I don't. I don't know if it's getting sold, but if when I'm going to Charleston, I have to go um, there to eat the sacks. I don't know the name of it, but it is the best place to have drinks and to have um, coffees and just oh and right on Shim Creek is beautiful out there. I'll be on Shim Creek on election night. That's where we'll be. Oh, well, I, you know what? I, I may be in Charleston on the election <laughs> night. You just let us know. <laughs> so we love it, but um, you know, us to close out, we are, we're just to take a moment, you know, we are so excited to have Representative Mace and for her to take the time to talk with us. You know, we, we reached out to both sides and, you know, that's important to note. Representative Mace side was the only one that you know, set a time with us and spent the time to really talk with us. And so we want to note that and we're so excited to have her on. Thank you so much for everybody that was listening. No, thank you as well. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it.